Today we read a message about John the Baptist, remarkable, remarkable person. There's so much to say about uh, this, this guy, but uh, we're going to focus on uh, one of the striking things that we see in this passage is how people respond to God's truth. We hear preaching from human sources and somehow the Lord penetrates our souls in a way that we resonate with the word being spoken. It makes sense. And sometimes we're like, yes, absolutely, that is right. Or it convicts us and we have remorse. Or we feel challenged or provoked or curious about it. Sometimes we talk with other people about a sermon we heard and we're like, no, nah, I don't really think that's true. What do you think about that? A while back, I was, uh, had someone call me who uh, was visiting a church out of town, and they go, wow, this pastor preached fire and brimstone. It is not at all how you would have preached it. And I was like, there's lots of ways to preach. Let's talk about what you heard. And that person was worried, not for themselves, but because they had brought a friend to church for the first time. And this person was going and all my friend could think about was like, oh no, oh no, oh no, this is going to be so bad. They're never, ever going to want to hear about Jesus again. And then they talked about it later and the friend was like, I loved it. <laughs> and my friend was like, really? Yeah, because it resonated. Something resonated. Whenever I read about John the Baptist, I wonder how I would feel if I were in the crowd listening to him. This is a guy that knows his role and doesn't seem to mind saying really hard things. He kind of thrives on shocking others. Or I wonder if it's this that we are so used to the truth given to us in a nuanced way that we need to be shocked. John the Baptist is not nuanced. And then I wonder what would it feel like to be him? I'm a pastor. What would it feel like to be chosen to live, you know, minimally out in the wilderness with a lot of solitude until the time comes that you're supposed to go and speak these hard things and pave the way for Jesus and to lay out the truth in such a way that you don't worry what anyone thinks or what anyone does to you. One thing we see from this passage is this. When the word of the Lord comes, we have to decide what we're going to do with it. It's simple. The gospel is simple. And so we're going to look at how some people responded. We see multiple ways that people respond to either the truth that they should know or the truth that John is giving to them. So let's pay attention to what our souls resonate with from Luke 3, starting at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went to all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Remember this, Isaiah, and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. 
John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Yeah, hi, how are you? <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized and they said, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also said to him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them by shutting up John in prison. This is God's word. Amen. So, I want to start by talking first about the leaders who are in verses 1 and 2. Luke skips ahead 18 years since we were in the scene last week in the temple with teenage Jesus. And Luke intentionally places John in a historical time frame. This matters because remember, Luke is laying out a case for Jesus being the one true God. So he gives a few years and a few names of who is in charge, like signposts in a snapshot of time. When did John the Baptist come again? Oh, right. Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was in Galilee. Wasn't that around 29 AD? Yes. Now, what is interesting about all of these men that usually we skip over to get to the real story is how they are all rulers in a sacred or secular realm who wielded their power in fairly terrible ways. So I'm adding them to the list of how people respond to truth because they were tasked with holding up the common good and leading with some form of integrity. So without getting too much in the weeds, let me just tell you a few things about them. Tiberius Caesar was called by those at that time as the gloomiest of all mankind. How'd you like that to be, that to be your moniker? His reign was known by dread and darkness, which only got worse as his reign went on when things descended into instability and terror. Now, we know Pilate as from the trial of Jesus when he famously asks, what is truth? So he's not really responding well to God there. He ruled for 10 years in such turbulence. He was known for taking bribes and robbing others. When the Roman authorities come after him, he disappears and no one ever hears from him again. 
We'll talk about Herod later, but just know that Jesus called him that fox. He is famous in this story for running off with his brother's wife, which John denounces. Lastly, Annas and Caiaphas were two of the most powerful men in the religious structure in Jerusalem, serving as high priests. Annas ruled for a long time, and when he finally retired and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, took over, Annas was still really running the show, and Caiaphas was his puppet on a string. So Luke opens the curtain in the beginning of Jesus' formal ministry by listing those who are greedy and corrupt and use their power for gain. And we might interpret this as saying, yes, Lord, clearly, clearly the world needed the light of the world. The darkness is crying out. But it's also a reminder that impressive names on a paper don't mean that they have noble character or that they do good. Because when all these things were going on and they were ruling, obsessed with their power and having dominion over their spheres of influence, over here, the word of the Lord came to John over here. And these people thought that they had all the power and all of the might, but the real power sent the word of the Lord over here to John, son of Zechariah, whose life was already opened to the Lord. He had already responded and was waiting for God to speak. So when we come to the verses in Advent again about the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, John's parents who had a baby at an old age, we will see how Zechariah sings a song about John's birth, but we want to think about a few verses in there. It's a prophecy that he declares over his son. In the beginning, he praises God for being faithful to his people and to he and his wife. And at the time of John's birth, his father knows through the power of the Holy Spirit how this child will be used. Look at what he says. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What a beautiful, beautiful prayer of blessing. What a testimony. Then Luke goes on to say how John grew up and became strong in spirit, how he lived in the wilderness until the day he publicly appeared in Israel. One of the reasons why John is able to respond with a fervent yes is not just because he had an assignment from God. It is also because he had faithful parents, faithful parents who modeled what serving the Lord looked like and who taught him how to respond well. Godly parents cannot be understated. But let's talk about the wilderness how it is an untamed place of desolation and despair. It's a place where one can find clarity and revelation, but those who find themselves in the wilderness, be it literal or metaphorical, report that it is a scary place of uncertainty. We can feel lost and disoriented in the wild because there's no tether to our normal patterns or comfort. But this is 
reported to be John's home. And we're not clear when he made his way out there. Luke makes it sound like Zechariah blessed him and then threw him out in the wilderness and just like left him there until uh, to fend for himself in the woods. That can't be true. But let's think for a second about John living out there. A time of preparation and closeness. But we also might think about how lonely it was or how hard it was. Maybe he preferred that. But Jesus said, of all of those born on earth, none was greater. None was greater than John the Baptist. So we might think about that. No earthly power or prestige. But in his fiery sermons, we see a soul who responded so well to the Father and is inviting in his own inimitable way all of those who will listen that the Father has something to say to them too. And it struck me for the first time this week that Jesus may have said that John was the greatest who ever lived because John's whole life was set aside for God early on to pave the way for Jesus. And he accepted that. He was obedient. He made himself ready by waiting. It was God's will. But John freely chose to do that. Oftentimes, responding well to God is a matter of learning what that looks like, believing that responding to God well matters. Of course, there has to be wrestling and intense feelings about it, but we just get to see the results. So there's a crowd who comes to see John, and he calls them a group of snakes, which is curious. Is he saying that they're dangerous, that they're not to be trusted? In the crowd, there are some who believe that their ties to Abraham will protect them from God's anger. Because their response to God is to claim family heritage. It doesn't matter. Now, that's not, that's not just something that those people did then. We do it now. Once saved, always saved. I'm not wearing to ruffle feathers. I'm just saying we can't really claim that we can do whatever we want because we have a certain moment in time that we received Jesus. Their response was to claim family heritage. And John says to them, who told you to flee? Who told you? <laughs> what are you doing here? Your connection to who was faithful before you, the goodness that maybe you had a long time ago, isn't going to save you when God comes. And this seems to people who are responding who somehow are responding in fear to avoid punishment. But this is not what God is about. John says there has to be repentance. This week in uh, my uh, group about uh, toxic discipleship, the book that Pastor Denny wrote, he points out how often we don't know what to do with God's holy anger. What do we do with the wrath of God? God seems so angry all the time. And Denny put in there a helpful quote that I've never seen before from Pope Benedict XVI who says this. The wrath of God is a way of saying that I have been living in a way that is contrary to the love that is God. Anyone who begins to live and grow away from God, who lives away from what is good, is turning his life towards wrath. So Denny says, it isn't that God has this huge emotional angry response. Rather, it is that our life has consequences when we leave God's presence. When we leave what he calls the paradise of being in God's presence all the time, 
Because when we go away from God, then we have struggle. Then we have sin and sorrow and death. Now, some commentators distinguish this first group of people who claim Abraham to a second group, people who heard John's tough love sermon and asked what they should do. So we see some of the first people walking away, dismissing John as an angry, ranting hermit guy who doesn't have any validity. But the second group says... What can we do? How can we please God? Now, this is interesting because they are teachable. And instead of walking away, they believe him. They want to know what they need to do. They're eager to have different lives. So instead of focusing on getting their needs met or what they want to hear, they ask what they can do. What can we do? This is such a good response. What does the Lord want from me? How should I act in this situation? What is my character? So John answers their questions with more blatant truth. John's teaching is on point here. Be generous. Don't take more than is your due in business. And don't use your authority to use others for gain. That's it. Pretty simple. But it's interesting, isn't it, how it's all about money? There's something about getting more that makes us as humans feel better about ourselves. Is it because we're greedy? Is it because we want to get one over on another person in a monopoly kind of way because we think that we deserve it? Is it because somehow we get our worth from what we have? These aren't just academic questions. This is where we live. Every day we have to decide if we're going to give away the things that we have to those who need it, if we're going to be honest with our money, if we're going to live satisfied with what we have every single day, or if we're going to hoard what we have, if we're going to keep buying what we don't need, if we're going to kind of keep trying to get ahead for any other reason except that we can. You see, the behavior that John's talking about is a symptom, not a cause. The cause is our heart's. And John is calling out those whose money is their God. So we ask ourselves, are we generous? Do we take more than we should? Do we use our authority or position or influence to gain more? Now, one thing Pastor Denny wrote about in this chapter, it's so weird that it came this week because we were talking about greed in our group, is how greed is a hidden deadly sin. Greed is one of the seven deadly sins that the early church recognized It's easy to appear philanthropic, but greed is hidden. People don't see it. And I think that is one of John's points, that repentance is a heart issue, that no matter how much we hold on to money, money itself is holding on to us in ways that we don't recognize. So I'm preaching to me just as much as I'm preaching to you. God doesn't like it when we value anything more than him more than we love other people. So we have to examine our hearts here. Now look what happens. Some people begin to expect that John is the Messiah. And this is also a natural response to gifted preachers when listeners idolize them and make them so much greater than they are. And these people are so taken by the truth that they take the next leap. You must be the Messiah. You're the one. Who else talks this way? No, John says, I am not. There is one coming, and I am not fit to tie his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He is coming with 
wrath with a winnowing fork, it's in his hand, which almost sounds like you ain't seen nothing yet. You think I'm bad, you wait till the next guy gets here. Now, a few resources that I read this week kind of negated John's teaching. One of them said, this is just terror. This isn't really God's love. This isn't the gospel. But look in Luke 18, where he calls John's exhortations the good news. John's giving the good news. And what do we do? What do we do with this? We can't just say that Jesus is the the nice coach, the good coach, and that John was like the mean coach. We don't give ourselves a pass because John was teaching in a specific context. The generalized truth is for us too. So we have to remember that God's word is true for all people. And we're going to be getting some hard teachings from Jesus pretty soon. And I love that John's response to the people about the Messiah is to say, the job of tying someone's sandals was the worst job anybody could have. It was the lowest of the low. And John is saying, my response to you, my response to God is that it's an honor for me. It's an honor for me to tie the sandals of the one who is coming. Lastly, we have to notice how Herod responds to John's preaching. John is not afraid of Herod. He is not afraid of authority. He's not afraid to speak the truth. He reminded the spiritual leader how stealing his brother's wife wasn't lawful. It was not okay. And for this, Herod puts John in prison. And we have to think how many mechanisms there are to silence the truth. Sometimes we shut it away and we don't allow truth to penetrate our hearts. Power does it adeptly because they can, but all of us do this to a certain degree from shushing our spouses to ignoring advice to saying, I'm not really open to talk about that with you right now. We can easily imprison truth, but that doesn't mean that we're not accountable to it. It's tragic for both John and Jesus that they were put to death for preaching truth because so many are fearful. They're fearful of the truth. And John's words remind us how we have to focus on what our response to God is. Plato says that the wise person chooses to be the victim rather than the aggressor. So would we rather be Herod or John the Baptist? Something to think about. Every day we're given choices about what we do with the truth of God. When something resonates with us, then we say yes. If something doesn't resonate with us, we should pay attention to that and question that. In this passage, we see both open and closed minds to what John is proclaiming. God used John to come and fill in the valleys and make straight what was crooked so that people would be more ready for Jesus. So let's examine our hearts. If we are disregarding or ignoring or shutting away God's truth, And ask the Lord what he has for us from his word today. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.